welcome to Conversations with Matt DeLocry. Everything we've talked about up to this point has been about Jesus and the communication of reliable information about him. That's still going to be the same going forward, but things will change a bit. In the first century, it was a little easier to figure things out about Jesus. A good source was not hard to come by. Should we trust this letter? I don't know. Ask Peter. What about this theological question? Well, Jerusalem is only 10 miles away. Go ask James. There were still a lot of people alive you could ask. There were the original disciples, the 70 other disciples Jesus sent out, the 500 witnesses that Jesus appeared to that we talked about when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. And still at the end of the first century, you could ask John, because he lived a really long time. And even beyond that, for basically the whole first century, there were still eyewitnesses around, including some who were not in favor of the whole Christianity thing, so you could get different perspectives. But what about in the second century? Who could you talk to then? Well, Polycarp was discipled by John, so that's pretty good. And there are some other guys who are also in contact with disciples. And oral tradition was passed down, and that's reliable, so there's still a lot of sources. But what about in the 3rd century? Or the 4th century? Now we might be starting to have some problems. We need to figure something out. However, the increasing distance in time from the original sources was not the only problem. There was another problem, and his name was Markian. Markian, spelled M-A-R-C-I-O-N, you'll also hear Marcion with a soft C, was a man who came to Rome around 140 AD. He claimed the Old Testament God was a second-tier figure who was a vengeful being, sort of like that harsh God of the Old Testament that people try to compare the loving Jesus to. Just so you know, if you claim that the Old Testament God was harsh and the New Testament God is loving, you're basically following this guy. By the way, that's not a Christian teaching. God doesn't change. Anyway, Markian basically rejected the Old Testament and anything Jewish. Again, sort of like Christians ignoring the Old Testament today. Hint, hint, don't do that either. He was denounced as a heretic in 144 AD and set up his own church, which hung around for about three centuries. However, he did something else that is important for our conversation today. He created a cannon. Not the kind that shot cannonballs, the other kind. The word cannon with one N, means rule or measure, and it is basically a ruler. It's the thing you measure everything else by. So, when we refer to the New Testament canon, we mean that it is the thing we measure everything else by. Well, Markian created his own. It consisted of an edited version of the Gospel of Luke and ten of Paul's letters, leaving out the pastorals, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Now, at this point, the church didn't have a canon of its own yet. It was not, however, a literary free-for-all. I put a link to a video that goes into this in more depth in the description. It's the one on how and when the New Testament canon was put together. Now, back to our story. So, the church didn't have a recognized canon put together that everyone agreed on yet. People were already reading certain works as authoritative, but there was still debate about which works were authoritative and which ones were not. Markian, however, probably got the early Christians moving on figuring those things out. After all, if you're going to say that Markian's collection of books is wrong, it would be really nice if you could point to another collection and say, see, this one is right. Now what I would really like to do is give you a step-by-step account of everything that happened over the next few centuries. Ideally, I would be able to walk you from the middle of the first century and on through the next couple of centuries until we finally made it to a canon that everyone agreed on. You know, a New Testament. The problem is that we really don't have that much information about what happened in those centuries. 
It's just not there. So what do we have? Well, what we have are basically quotations from early church fathers. Think important people in the early church who lived after the first century. We can look at those writings and see what they quote and treat as scripture. We also have lists of works that different individuals and groups thought should make up the New Testament canon. And we have the criteria that early Christians used to decide whether a book or letter should be in the canon. So I'm going to paint this picture as best I can, but understand there's going to be some holes. Unfortunately, history can be like that. But here's what we do know. By the time of Markian, Paul's letters were probably already circulating as a collection, and so were the four Gospels. However, because of Markian, and others like him, the church started to put forth a more concerted effort to come to an agreement on what work should be read as scripture. In other words, they started trying to figure out what the canon was. Note that I said, figure out what the canon was. For Christians, this was a spiritual process. They were not trying to create a canon under their own power or make it whatever they wanted it to be. They were trying to determine what works God had already had his hand on. And the discussions and the debates about this for the next few centuries were about trying to figure out which books and letters God wanted people to rely on as authoritative and representative of his will for his people. This led to the list of what people thought should be in the New Testament. The first such list is known as the Muratorian List. The Muratorian List is a list of all the works thought to be canonical by the list author. However, only a fragment remains, so if you look this up, you will probably find the term Muratorian Fragment as often as you find Muratorian List. It is 85 lines long. It recognizes the four Gospels, but it only lists Luke and John because the first two at the beginning of the list are missing, hence Muratorian Fragment. However, because it says four Gospels and then lists Luke and John as numbers three and four, it is commonly thought that Matthew and Mark are the first two. It also accepts Acts. It accepts the 13 letters of Paul. It accepts Jude, 1 John, and 2 John, or possibly 3 John. It's one of the two. And the Apocalypse of John, which we know as Revelation. There are obviously some letters that we have in our New Testament today that are left out, and there are a few more that the Muratorian list lets in or considers that we don't have in our New Testament, such as the Apocalypse of Peter, though it accepts it with some hesitation. However, in this list, we are looking at 22 out of the 27 works in the New Testament. What we can see is that by the point of this list, the church was talking about a canon that was not very different from the one that we have today. And importantly, this list is generally dated to about 170 AD. So we're not talking about having no idea what the canon looks like until three or four centuries later. Within a hundred years of the writing of the documents, we have a list that's talking about a canon that, while it doesn't look exactly like what we have now, it isn't that far off. It would take a while until there was agreement on the final form of the canon, but its bones had been put together pretty early on. Now, we cannot assume that everyone is completely on board with the list we find in the Muratorian fragment, but it gives us a sort of general idea about where things were in the 2nd century. There will be a lot of debate from the 2nd to 4th century over what does and does not belong in the canon, and this debate will focus especially on Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. If you're interested, I put a link to a second video in the description that talks about the various lists we have from this period and who accepts what. What we do know is that by the late 4th century, there was wide agreement on a canon of 27 works. 
Now, we don't know the full process of how this came to be, but we do know what factors played a role. There were three main requirements for any letter or book to make it into the canon. They're as follows. 1. Apostolic Origins For a work to make it into the canon, it needed to be either written by an apostle or someone associated with an apostle. For example, Mark was a companion of Peter. Luke followed Paul in some of his missionary work. Notice I said apostle, not disciple. Paul was an apostle, meaning that he was one of the people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Obviously, though, he was not one of the twelve. James, the brother of Jesus, was similar to Paul. He did not believe in Jesus during his earthly life, but later he became a leader of the early church, Acts 15. And we find in 1 Corinthians 15, the early creed we talked about a few episodes ago, the apparent reason for his conversion. Jesus, his brother, appeared to him. As a side note, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation? So James didn't believe in Jesus his whole life, and then Jesus appears to him after being resurrected and has to be like, Sup, bro? Anyway, we're not addressing the question of who actually wrote the books or letters, if, indeed, it is actually someone different than tradition suggests. What I'm saying is that as people thought through which writings they were going to trust, they looked to the ones they thought were written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. Now, this was not the only criteria. Not all works attributed to apostles have made it into the canon. We know for a fact that Paul, for example, wrote other letters. 2 Corinthians 2.4 mentions another letter to the Corinthians that we do not have, and Colossians 4.16 talks about a letter to the Laodiceans that we do not have. There are probably many, many more beyond these, not only of Paul, but also of the other apostles. But for various reasons, they did not make it into the canon. Authorship by an apostle or associate of an apostle qualified a writing for canonicity, but it did not guarantee it. Also, 2 Thessalonians 2.2 makes mention of letters that were written falsely under apostles' names. So, not all writings were accepted uncritically. Just because something says it was written by an apostle did not guarantee that people believed it. Writing under a false name was not uncommon. However, this would get a work rejected for entrance into the canon. Note, this is not the same thing as a writing being anonymous, as in the case of Hebrews. Not putting your name on something is different than putting a false name on something. Many people thought Hebrews was written by Paul, but then again, many did not. The questionable authorship of Hebrews, however, caused it to be one of the letters that was debated back and forth for a long time. Something else we should consider about this particular criterion, apostolic origins, is the value that it places on the historical Jesus. Christians were not interested in making up a Jesus to meet their needs or shape the gospel for whatever was relevant for the time. Please don't miss the criticism I'm directing at modern Christians. For a work to be recognized as part of the canon, it must have been attached to an apostle because who Jesus actually was mattered. Christians believed, and still believe, that what they read in the New Testament actually happened. That means that Jesus lived. That means that Jesus was who he said he was. And that means that Jesus was crucified, died, rose from the dead, and then appeared to people after his death. Christianity was never separated from the Jesus of history, and we should not attempt to do so now. And that is precisely what we do when we try to make Jesus sound like he would be okay with things that are popular right now. We are attempting to make a Jesus in our own image. This is not what they did, and this is not what we should do. The second criterion for work to be accepted into the canon is conformance to the rule of faith. 
This means that it had to conform to the oral tradition that had been passed down from the time of Jesus. For a letter or book to be accepted, it had to meet the standard that was already in existence. This would have been the standard that came down through oral tradition. To us, though, this sounds problematic for at least two reasons. One, how can we be sure that people could remember things well enough for them to be an accurate judge of what's right and what's not? And two, it seems backwards to value oral tradition over written documents. To the question of whether or not people could remember things well enough, I would suggest you go back and listen to the first episode in this series on word-of-mouth communication. It's an absolutely a good question to ask, and I addressed it in detail in that episode. To the question about oral tradition, the fact is that oral tradition was valued in oral cultures more than written documents for a number of reasons. For starters, 90% of people couldn't read, which is a good reason all by itself. For why this was not a problem for remembering information, again, go back and listen to the first episode in this series. Second, authorship of written documents was still a question mark. They had one of the same problems back then that we have today. If you're looking at a book or letter, how do you know that the person who it says wrote it is actually the person who wrote it? Anyone could say that this is the gospel according to John, but how do you know that John actually wrote it? On the other hand, if you're talking to someone you know was a disciple of John, then you know where your information is coming from. Third, oral tradition was interactive. And we know this firsthand as well. If we're reading something in the New Testament and have a question about what it means, we can't just ask the text. It's just words on a page. But if you're hearing it from an actual person, then you can ask questions. For all those reasons, and probably others, oral tradition was trusted more than written documents for a long time. So it only makes sense that documents were compared to oral tradition before they were accepted into the canon. And, as we talked about earlier, this question of what belongs in the canon got started pretty early on. There were already lists of what belonged in the canon within a hundred years after the documents that were being discussed were written. That's only a couple of generations, and for an oral tradition in an oral culture, it wouldn't be hard to remember things and for people to communicate reliable information for that length of time. So, for a written document to make it into the canon, it had to conform to the oral traditions Christians had been passing down from the beginning. Finally, the third and last criterion for something to be accepted in the canon was widespread acceptance. It had to be accepted by a large number of churches, not just one here or there. We're looking at things that were accepted by most churches, so we're talking about an organic process. This was not a top-down thing imposed on churches by a central figure or authoritative body. It made a difference what individual churches saw in practice as they read and taught from these books and letters. These three criteria, however, only give us sort of a surface-level view. In reality, the composition of the canon was something that those involved would have thought was spirit-led. In other words, they thought of the canon as something that God was putting together. The humans involved were simply looking for and recognizing God's will. And if God actually raised Jesus from the dead, then why would we think it would be strange that he would ensure that humans recognize a canon that he had already decided on? Whether you believe Jesus rose from the dead or not is another question, one which we will get into at a later date. But God's hand in shaping the canon makes perfect sense if he's the one behind Christianity itself. I hope that gives you a basic idea of how we arrived at the books and letters that we have in our New Testament today, why some were chosen and others were not, and how this whole process took place. We have two more episodes left in the series on New Testament origins. In the next one, we're going to be talking about manuscripts and all of the copies and copies of copies that were made that preserved the New Testament 
so that it's still around today, but that leave us wondering a bit whether or not things got changed in the process. In the last episode, we're going to talk about translation and whether or not what you read in English Bibles looks anything like what's in the Greek New Testament. Before you leave, if you've been enjoying this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it so that you can keep up with the rest of the series and the ones to follow. Also, please consider recommending it to a friend or sharing an episode you like on social media. You can share a podcast episode directly, or you can go to my YouTube channel and share a link to one of the videos there. Just go to YouTube and search for Matt DeLockery, and my channel will come up. And if you have a question on something I said in one of my episodes, you can make a comment on that episode in YouTube, and I'll do my best to answer it. 